So I guess I'm out of the book club. Howdy, everyone. You're watching uh, Unsafe Space. You're watching Book Club with me, Carter Laren, and uh, our host today, Richard Petz. Say hi, Richard. You're, you're on. Hi, everybody. Um, I apologize for the accent. I keep, people keep telling me I still have an accent, which I deny. But um, You do, but it's okay. Americans like the, the British accent. It's all good. Yeah, okay, well. We'll see how it goes. If you can't understand what I'm saying, just make that clear, and I'll try to tidy up my, uh, you know, speech. Yeah, you can. You just have to throw in some American colloquialisms, and then you'll you'll fool everyone. Um, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, if you are joining us, this is the book club discussion for "The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo" by Steve Larson, and Richard will be hosting. I'm just here to kick it off and make a couple announcements one is the next book uh after this one will be what national divorce the peaceful solution to irreconcilable differences that will be on january 8th the book is by tom woods and the host will be keith Bissett, who's also going to join us for the girl with the dragon tattoo discussion today so he can talk more about that and um the book after that will be a book called light by M. John Harrison, it's, which is a science fiction book. And I'm not sure I'm supposed to use the person's name who's hosting. I don't know how, what, how he went. Hooligan, if you're in, uh, <laughs> if you're in uh, Discord, his name is Hooligan. His handle's Hooligan. I'm not sure what name he wants to go by on air, so I won't, I won't dox him. But he'll be hosting that, and that's on February 5th of next year. So those are the two books to get in your queue and start reading if you want. I'm going to, I don't think there's any other announcements other than like, follow, share, go to unsafespace.com, sign up for the abstract, which comes out every Saturday and gives you a summary of the week's news, all that kind of stuff. I don't think there's many more announcements to make, so I'm going to let Richard take over, and uh, and then I'm going to ask Alex and Keith, who are in the background, when Richard is done with his intro, go ahead and add yourselves back in, because I don't think Richard can do that so uh there we go richard take it away thanks carter okay so uh today's book club book is the girl with the dragon tattoo uh this was a book written by steve larson and it was uh it's the first book in a three book series which i believe now has been expanded to I'm not sure, five or six books, but um, the first three were written by him himself. Uh, this book was first published in um, 2005 in Swedish, and then it was uh, subsequently translated and released in 2008 in the UK under the title The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. But the original book in Swedish was Men Who Hate Women. For those of you who are unaware of that, uh, Stieg uh, was born in 1954 and died 50 years later in uh, 2004. So he was pretty young when he 
when he died from a heart attack, I believe. And um, the other two books that are part of this series are The Girl Who Played With Fire, which was released in 2006, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest, which was released in 2009. And together they make up a pretty good trilogy, but this book is the one we're focused on today. And um, yeah, it's a pretty good, it's a good read and it covers a lot of different um, subjects. Uh, I suppose the main, the one in particular is um, violence against women. And um, throughout the book, there are four parts to the book and then each part has subsequent chapters. But the heading for each part features a statistic drawn from Swedish, uh, I'm not sure the exact data source, but around statistics uh, uh, around the subject of violence against, sexual violence and violence against women. So, yeah. Okay, so if anybody has any... Um, you guys want anybody want to join and have some discussion around the book that would be great um i would love to have a discussion i just i don't want to be here just myself talking about the book <laughs> so anyway um yeah what do you guys think well anything to say oops hi uh I'm, hold on, <laughs> I'm getting feedback. <laughs> I've got a quick question. Maybe you can just for people who don't know this book, Richard, um, can you can you talk about um, so the violence against women is like a, a major subject, uh, a major theme in the book. Um, can you talk about why, like? why you chose it from that like was that related to your choice like what what are the what were the reasons that you chose this book and thought that this is a really good book that people should be reading yeah okay so um according to stieg's um partner um i think at the age of 14 he was exposed to um his friends gang raping a girl and um I believe that left a kind of a devastating mark on his psyche because he didn't step in to try to defend her. And um, so that, you know, and I think for myself, I never, I never experienced that as a child, but at a quite a young age, I do remember being around, um, I think I was probably like around 13 years old, 12 maybe. Um, I just... I'd just been sent to secondary school in England, which is sort of like high school. And um, we were out in this kind of backfield. And a bunch of the other guys, or the you know, other boys, had were torturing um, a hedgehog. Now, it sounds ridiculous, right? But um, I couldn't understand it. I couldn't relate to it at all. It, it was, I found it kind of repulsive. And I that left a mark on me too. Like, what kind of you know, why are they doing this and how are they deriving such seeming pleasure out of um, torturing a, a defenseless, defenseless animal? So, you know, the two experiences, I suppose, resonate with me. 
in the sense that there are different kinds of people out there. Some, and there does seem to be a kind of delineating line running through psychology um, that separates people one side or the other. Like some people just seem to derive pleasure. I suppose it's some sort of sadistic streak and other people don't. And that's kind of, um, I feel that that, that, that that part of psychology expands across society into other domains and, uh, yeah, f produces all kinds of different kinds of predators. Um, and so this book focuses on sort of like more like uh, the predatory animus of men against women, but the... There are certainly other kinds of predators, both across both sexes, I believe. So, um, yeah, that's where my interest in the book. And then the, the, yeah, the story is great as well. And I feel like he kind of builds up a pretty good story around that. Yeah, the, the protagonist in the book is you know, a, 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 a girl, a young woman who's suffered her own... Um, violence against her uh, and um, and she's a bit of an outcast in society right she doesn't trust authorities with good with good reason and um, so she's this sort of outcast and she gets mad you know the story brings her and this journalist together in an unlikely scenario and um, yeah the book kind of takes off from there right so I, I like that whole, you know, what you just brought up. And I see that as kind of the underlying theme. So violence against women, you know, by evil people, like that exists, right? We all yeah. have to live with that as a fact. And you can expand that. It's not just women. It's all, it's all forms of evil people. And you have to live with it. And I love the contrast because the book has these major characters that have different ways of solving it. Yeah. So like the journalist, his method is to free speech like he's just going to tell everybody here's what's happening even yeah. if he gets put in jail that's yeah. his method the uh police essentially do nothing which is kind of expand that the government's not going to help and then elizabeth is like i'm going to take care of this on my own and no one is even going to know what i'm doing yeah and that's the end like that's the hero the end of the book hero is actually elizabeth who and i'm kind of in that camp myself so i, I love the whole theory yeah i mean it, yeah i find it Actually, I mean, I first read the book, oh, I don't know, like uh, a decade ago or something like that, and then maybe a little bit longer than that. And um, I've read it a number of times since. And now it, it's, you know, it, when I first read it, it was, a, you know, just as kind of a novel and an interesting story. But now I see it more and more relatable to what's actually happening broadly in civilization and um so yeah I, I feel like in some sense it's you know quite kind of prescient i guess you know to what's going on today you know even when you take a look at like how oh you know just thinking about julian assange for example just to use him as an example because he's you know kind of in the news and stuff or well known perhaps and it's interesting how people's reaction to to him get it seems pretty divided cleanly between those who think of him as 
I don't want to use the word hero, but let's just use that word for argument's sake. And those who feel like he, you know, should be left to rot in a jail somewhere, right? And it doesn't seem to be a lot of people who, you know, a lot of most people I speak to kind of fall one way or the other, right? As if they know of him at all, you know, and if they don't, they think of him, I don't know. He is a hero to people who believe in freedom of speech and believe in exposing illegal, immoral, evil actions of our, my government. <laughs> you know, if you want to call it that, my, I didn't pick it, so I hesitate to use the word my, but American, American citizens. I'm a Florida citizen, but um, he exposed that. What he said is true as best. Like the, the government's not even denying that it's true. Yeah, uh, they, that isn't the reason they want to either put him in jail for life, extradite him, put him in jail for life, or give him the death penalty. Like that's the two options. Um, and he's languishing. You know, who knows yeah. what's going to happen? But um, that's a journalist. So yeah, I see that analogy. I didn't think of that one, but it's a perfect analogy for for the guy going to jail for an article. Yeah. Or even like, or Russell Brick, um, you know, rotting, now rotting in jail kind of thing, right? Um, you know, I mean, whether you, you know, it's a conflation of crime. You know, for me, that's a conflation of things put together to make a case publicly, to get the um, public support, right? But what he did was, whether you agree on people taking drugs mm -hmm. or not, you know, modern day update of this would be that the journalists for exposing these crimes would have to would get trapped in Moscow by the CIA and FBI and have to seek Russian citizenship. Like, yeah, that could well, be the subject line actually wouldn't change the book any. Yeah. And it would all take place in Moscow because yeah, right. <laughs> Elizabeth, <Yeah. laughs> I'm just going through this. But the scenario is like Elizabeth would have to go to Moscow with the journalists and do all her work from there. And as long as she had good internet, it wouldn't matter at all. She'd be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe better, well, might be better off there. <laughs> well, and the thing is though, is that both Russia and Sweden have extreme problems with um, abuse of women that uh, they're not handling well and have not handled well historically. Yeah. Um, so like Sweden's in the top 10 for rape uh, rates in the world which is insane because a lot of people think of Sweden as like part of this developed world, yep. you know, country that, but, and it's, but it's right up there with like, you know, some African countries. And it's like, that's pretty horrible. Yeah. You're not, you're not fixing this problem. And it, it, it doesn't seem like even since this book came out that it got any better. It seems like it actually got worse. Right. Um, and then, and then Russia has a big problem too with the same issue. They're not as bad as Sweden, though, which is saying something. Yeah, it is saying something, yeah. Russia's not going to be majority Muslim population within a decade or two. Like, Sweden can no longer do anything about that. And to look at Sweden now compared to then, like, they don't talk in this book about blonde, you know, 100% Swedish heritage women dyeing their hair black to avoid rape. Like, that isn't in this book. Yeah. And that's Did what's he, going on now. I think he, he died before it started to become an, like an issue in Sweden. But it's, right. see, it's, it's prevalent that even though rape is like such a big issue in Sweden now and it's on along ethnic lines, it's, it shows you that a lot of the problem has to do with 
how their government handles sexual assault if they still if they had this problem previously, which they did. Yeah. I mean, Sweden, I yeah. Go ahead. I was going to ask is Sweden one of the governments that uh, stopped reporting ethnic origin and rape cases. They're, they're not quite to the to the level of say Canada, where I don't think they they won't even report the sex in a rape case right? because they're not sure. Yeah, but I, I mean, yeah, I I totally agree, but I don't think um, this phenomenon, if you, if you want to call it that, of you know violence towards women, is limited to um, you know one country or the other, right? It's it you know I agree wholeheartedly that it's worse in some cultures than others for sure but unfortunately it's not one of the things that is unique to one place or one culture or you know what i mean it seems to be more fundamental than that and um yeah so you know i mean i don't know if you're a breaking bad fan but um (laughs) That's a show that I've watched a few times, and there's I think there's one episode in uh, that where this character Mike, who's an ex police officer, is kind of giving a a little talk about half measures. I think actually that's the name of the episode in that show, where he describes you know being caught out on a domestic dispute. I know this is fictional and everything, but it's nevertheless still pretty relevant. I think he he gets called out on a domestic, and you know they take the guy away, they put him in the tank overnight, and then blah blah, blah and it, you know it goes on, and and then sure enough, the woman gets killed in the end, right? Where he had had the opportunity to sort of like you know kind of end this guy's life, and. I think there's plenty of examples of that, even, you know, within our own Western. um, I know in England, there was, you know, cases of women getting, um, you know, suffering from violence. And even in my partner's family, there's examples in that. I won't go into any depth on that or mention any names, but there were cases in that and the come, you know, the family oftentimes hides, you know, wants to hide it. All right. Because of the shame, I suppose that surrounds it. But, um, it, you know, it is something that is pervasive, I think, rather than limited to one country or another or one culture or another, for some reason, I don't know. It's something, I, I, I think it's something as, as a, um, I don't, want to, I don't even know what, should, what I should call myself, in fact, actually, a libertarian. I don't like any of these types. I don't like any of the labels anymore. Um, you know, but I, for myself, I take that, you know, the nonviolent approach to life, you know, across the board. Do you know what I mean? Like I, and this is not to say that I don't believe in self-defense. Of course, I completely and utterly believe in self-defense. But I would also believe that for women, if, you know, I think women, if they were armed, would suffer much less in some of these countries because at least they would have a means to defend themselves. And yet, you know, this this is sort of an issue that is just like swept under the rug, right? 
So I, I, I want to address something because there's someone in chat who's upset that we're saying that, that that you're saying it's unique to Islam, and I the the violence or that it's not unique to Islam that it's in in every culture, and I think that's history. I just I, I just want to we have to be factual. It is in every culture. There yeah. is violence in every culture and has been throughout all of history. Now currently, many Western nations have found ways and have, have done a good job to reduce that as a cultural norm and done a much better job. And Islam is by far the worst today culturally. Um, so there is a difference in, in you know, in especially in fundamentalist Islamic cultures. That, distant, that difference does exist, but it doesn't mean that the problem is unique. It's not like it's not like it only exists because of Islam. That's not true. Islam just uh, has not curbed it in the way that the West has. The West has done a much better job of, well, I'll just use this word liberally, of, of liberalizing morals and saying, okay, well, you know, we can't have slavery. We can't, we can't treat, uh, you know, we can't use violence against people. And um, so I, there's a difference between saying it's unique to Islam and it's more prominent in Islam. And no one is saying that it's not elsewhere. Uh, or that, sorry, no one is saying it's only Islam and no one is saying it's not elsewhere. It's just worse here. It's worse, worse in Islam. Yeah. Well, and I, I do want to say that um, while well, it, it's a small percentage of men who do rape women or physically abuse women, it's like I am... So, and by the way, most Western countries do not have a method of protecting men from abusive or sexually assaultive women. Um, there's no legal recourse in that regard at all for most men, which is a problem. That's actually where our problems are in the West for the most part when it comes to sexual violence. But um, it has a lot to do with how society responds to sexual violence. Now, currently, the West is so afraid of being called racist that a lot of our governments are not responding to uh, violence from Islam of women. And that is a huge problem. Uh, they, are, they are definitely like underdoing it. Like he said, they stopped tracking ethnicity of assailant in totally. Sweden. That's huge. That is, that is definitely cowardly. So like a lot of, like you don't get rid of or minimize violence against people without a societal response. And right now we're like, the West is not societally responding to these uh, Islamic attacks of their women, like unfortunately. And just like in the US, we're not responding to women's violence against men. So it's still ongoing. It's the same problem. If you don't, if the society doesn't say it's wrong and punish the people who do it, it'll keep happening. And that's what we're seeing right now. Yeah. I mean, I want to comment too. I just, after you said that, Carter, I read, read through that chat. Um, that's, it's just like insane groupthink. Uh, nobody here ever said anything that all Muslims do this. It's, I mean, from what I can tell, it's like a small percentage, as Alex said. And, you know, my information includes like half a dozen family members I'm close to that lived in Tehran for 20 years. 
right before the revolution. So I don't know if this guy knows, like, what, say, Iran, a uh, overwhelmingly majority Muslim country, um, what that was like before 53, before the CIA coup, then from 53 to 79, when the next coup happened, which was mostly, I don't want to get into that, but it's in response to American influence and what Iran is like now. So, no, uh, I know people well that lived the first half of their adult life in Tehran, and it's a beautiful city. Um, the people that live there say the only city they knew of that was nicer than that is Paris, and it was perfectly fine for a 12-year-old to take the bus across town. So that's changed a lot. So, no, it's not all Muslims. Unfortunately, it seems to be the, the percentage of Muslims moving to UK, uh, Sweden, and other places are are that type. And maybe it's 1%. I don't know. Maybe it's 5%. But I see the government's doing things to squash that getting out. I don't think it can happen in the U.S. I think the U.S. will do something. Uh, it's not going to happen in Russia. There's no way the Kremlin will let that happen in Russia. Uh, it's not happening in Japan. It's not happening in China. N no way. Uh, but some European countries are allowing it. And I at least hope... It can't happen here. I don't actually know. I know a lot of Muslims. I'm, a, I'm in the tech field. Uh, there's plenty of, of Muslims from Iran, uh, Pakistan, northern India. Like, they're all great people. And they're devout Muslims. So, no, it's not everybody. And nobody here said that. So, at some point, these people are a troll, in my opinion. In, no, in I, don't, our I think you're misinterpreting the messages. This this person's not saying it's all Muslims. The person is saying that the fundamental problem is Islam, and I think I think I don't think the fundamental problem is Islam because uh, violence predates Islam and <laughs> exists mm -hmm. outside of Islam. However, I do think Islam is in modern times some interpretations. At least I'm not a theologian, so I can't differentiate between you know what different interpretations of, of the Quran are, but there are definitely various prevalent and prominent interpretations of Islam that are pretty vile with respect to ethics. Um, and they are uniquely vile with respect to ethics compared to other major belief systems in, in the world. And a this after the enlightenment, like, I'll point out. <laughs> Right. And this, yeah, after the enlightenment and this person, person is correctly complaining, like not complaining, but pointing out like, look, this has been a real problem. Rotherham, Rockdale, Rockdale, uh, Bradford, like uh, Manchester, there's been all of these attacks in the UK, but elsewhere. And, um, and it is the West's blindness to the philosophical condoning and even encouraging of this behavior. That is the problem right now, whether or not it's, it's a, problem with humans generally philosophically that's ground zero at least in 2022 and and it is it does tie in with the book so i'm glad we're talking about it because i'm sure a lot of there's other people who will think that and that's kind of the purpose of book club and public chat is that we hear these different opinions but i reject a lot of what he said because it's groupthink. that's basically why i reject that um yeah, you well, note in the book i'll just point out in the book Every single evil person in this book is white, Swedish, and Christian. So you got that. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and like I said, this book predates the large amount of influx of Muslim immigrants to Sweden. 
So to me, a lot of this has to do with the fact that Sweden doesn't have a very good record of responding to sexual assault, which means it's ripe for an ethnic sexual violence problem. Because if it was already a problem that they were not responding well to sexual violence, then they're not going to respond well when it explodes because of an ethnic uh, difference. It's it, So to me, it's sort of like, uh, yeah, definitely um, there is a small percentage of men in every culture who are violent towards women. And you're not going to prevent that from happening like completely. That's They're just going to exist. It's how you respond to them. And uh, the problem, one of the big problems, though, is that there is a philosophy within Islam that says it's okay to rape. So in some, not every, like again, it's like Carter said, it's it's an interpretation that says it's okay to physically assault women of non-Muslim faith, and that's that's pretty harsh. But it's giving them a uh, a religious reason. To, to be able to, you know, a pass to be able to commit sexual violence. Um, and see, that's the thing, a lot of, like, a lot of predators, they will just use whatever, if, if society tells them, hey, it's okay, we're not going to punish you, and and your religious faith tells you, yeah, it's not that big a deal, then you're, then they're going to take advantage of it. They're predators. They, predators don't care about ethics beyond what society does or does not punish them for. So to me, I'm sort of like, unless you you come down hard on it, uh, you're not going to get it to, to at least stymie it uh, from from exploding. And that, and I think that's where the problem is. Is again, societal reaction is not what it should be. Yeah. So I mean, go ahead. So so yeah. I mean, like from a. Um, a psychological viewpoint um this this um protection of predators in society um is like a, i think at like the heart of the problem you know um we allow all kinds of predators to um circulate but the worst of them ironically we get you know our attention gets pushed towards the most kind of, I don't know, cartoonish kind of predators out there. And in the meantime, we've got some really awful predators circulating at the top of the power chain, right? And we're too blindsided as a kind of a broad society to sort of like protect against that. And that's, you know, so it's a, it's not just a explicit um, violence. It's also this implicit predatory, um, I don't know, it's just like a psycho psychopathy, I think, right? It's a deeply psychological um, um, flaw in the human, you know, human species that allows for that to happen and then you know look where we're at right now like we're just you know doing our best to sort of you know try to protect ourselves really never mind those around us and yeah i i agree and at, at some point i think we should get back to the book 
because actually the book is about this, that yep. there are evil people in the world and you have to deal with them. However you want to deal with them, the book is actually about evil white Swedish Christians. But, you know, the point that some Muslims and everybody knows at this point, the percentage of Muslims that happen to be in Sweden right now and probably in a lot of Muslim, maybe all Muslim countries, is higher than the percentage of Swedish people who do this. I think the reason that uh, this is speculation, but I've, when this first when this problem started happening, I started researching Sweden, and, and I've written articles about it. Like, like I'm interested in that. Never been there, um, but it looks to me, as best I can tell right now, the, one of the reasons that the Swedish government doesn't know how to handle this is it wasn't a problem, <laughs> and and that's kind of the book is like the one the most yep. evil person, raping, killing women, you know, in the book is also like the the uh president of a, of one of the biggest companies in Sweden like it's such an unusual thing that the police couldn't even track these murders over a 40 50 year period all over the country one every couple years like they never saw the connection because it's so rare they all nobody nobody found this until this guy this guy starts this investigation he digs it all up it just wasn't a problem in Sweden so yeah. I, I think we all probably recognize that. Um, but at some point, we should get back to the book, <laughs> I think. Yeah. My opinion. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Can you yeah. guys say, what do you, think, what do you think the author says about the psychological motivation reason behind this? Because there's, um, there, there's like a little bit of generational passing down of things. Like is there, is, does the author just treat this as, oh, well, some people are like this and there's no explanation? Or is there... Uh, is there more nuance and is there a reason there? Hmm. Well, yeah, I don't like, I don't think he explicitly um, tries to explain the psychology behind these people, um, the, the predatory people, like, um, Except for the except except into the in the case of these the serial killer who finally gets exposed and dealt with in the story, um, he learned it off of his um, father. Essentially, he was sort of mentored by his father, and you know they used um, and in the process he was mentored to rape his sister. But he was a child himself at the time that he was being mentored, so you know that that in in and of itself is a real horror story. Like if you can imagine, you know, a young child being mentored by their father to become a you know a, a serial killer. That's pretty horrific. But then the there is a, there is a little bit of a sort of a description when the serial killer himself is sort of. Um, confessing to the um, journalist, the Blomkiss character, who's tied up at this point, and he's, you know, he's going to kill him. But he comes out and says, well, you know, he, he actually takes pleasure in um, capturing these people and then making some kind of, you know, he, he sees people as pathetic, mostly, this this serial killer, and just, just takes pleasure in getting rid of them. You know, he says, uh, you know, so there is some kind of delving into the psychology there, I suppose. And um, 
But it's shocking in the sense that, you know, if you're not one of these, you know, it's hard to relate to these people, right? Because why do they derive pleasure from this kind of, but, you know, and I was just having a conversation this morning with my, with my partner and we were talking about the book and the story. And then we were trying to relate it to what's been happening during the last couple of years. And it's interesting because like we noticed that it seemed to bring out um, the opportunity for so many people to um, become like little tyrants. You know, at the, at the drop of a hat, people would just kind of like take on that role. And we noticed it quite a bit around like, you know, you're going to a store, you're not standing in the right spot or whatever. And, you know, some employee would come over and just be like, you know, like they're so happy that they're in this position now to tell someone else what they should and shouldn't do. And that, and that, you know, that doesn't take much for people to come out of the woodwork like that and become like mini tyrants. And that was a little bit, um, telling i guess right especially when you read back like books like you know what happened prior to um the second world war and how how so many people went along with it and all this kind of stuff but when you when you look around today what's happened over the last couple of years it's not really surprising at all because people take the opportunity to um lord it over somebody else i guess is this is the way of putting it you know so this 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 aspect of humans exists widespread, I believe, right? And when it comes to like the tip of the spear with like the serial killers, yeah, that's the tip of the spear, but there is certainly a wider, a broader um, percentage of the population who, while they wouldn't go that far, they still have the impulse to, you know, like to power over somebody else just for the pleasure of it, I think, right? You know, what do you guys Yeah, think? I mean, it, yeah, and, and I think if we're going to, I mean, we can start with just what we know about reality, which is, uh, <laughs> but it's both, it's both genetic and environmental contributions uh, are, 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 are factors in someone turning out to be this way, there can can be factors, and so uh, it can be a mix of both. And the question I think really is, uh, I mean, we should focus more on the book. But the question when, when we ask to sell ourselves this in society is like, well, if it's a problem, the, we can't really control the genetics, although you can to some extent by uh, <laughs> make, making it hard for people with with, with psychopathic genetics to. Uh, procreate in some way. And I'm not talking about castration or I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to sterilize people. I'm just saying, you know, society can't, can do that. They can make that a less desirable trait. Um, but the questions like what environmental factors are we, uh, th which are controllable, what are we doing that is sanctioning this, encouraging it, allowing it. One of the things, as Alex mentioned earlier in, in modern times is we're, afraid of being accused of being racist or saying anything nasty about this other culture that is, you know, completely an evil ideology. Uh, but in the book's time, that wasn't the, the case here, which is 
like, well, how are these people getting away with it? What are what are we doing? And maybe it's just they're not really getting away with it. And there's just aberrant behavior in any culture. And that's going to happen. Um, but, you know, it does raise the question, like, what are what else do we do that allows people to get away with this? And Alex also pointed out something that isn't in the book and is kind of the reverse, but is a big problem. Right now, we have a violence against violence against men. There's no domestic violence against men is basically un, impossible to even report in many cases. Right. It's just completely untracked. And so um, the the question is like, well, what what's really going on underneath there? What, what are why is our culture allowing that? What are we doing? We've demonized men in many ways and blah, blah, blah. And we've you know, so I think there's fascinating issues here. Um, I guess I guess my I, I want to kind of try and push the discussion back towards in Sweden when the book was written, <laughs> like in the world that he's talking about, yep. not in like the world that we're in now, but in the world that he's talking about, um, what, you know, what are his explanations? What does he see? Um, and does he, does he condone who's, you know, Keith earlier was like, well, there's different approaches to this. The journalist has this approach. He's going to be free speech. And um, Elizabeth has a different approach. Uh, she's going to take care of it herself. Does the do you think the author condones one over the other, or is has like a prescription for how to fix this? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean that's the book itself answers that question in some sense by exploring the relationship between uh, bringing together, you know, this hacker like cipher punk kind of person to this mainstream, not mainstream, but you know, like pretty mainstream kind of guy, and like merging their worlds in some ways. And um, I just want to push back a little bit on some idea that might be floating around out there. Like, I don't, I'm not a determinist. I'm, I don't consider myself a determinist. Um, because there are plenty of examples of people growing up in very, very abusive homes and don't turn out to be psychopaths. She turned out to be the complete opposite in some, you know, in some ways. Right? So, and then other people growing up in very kind of, you know, non-abusive households and turning out to be some real kind of stuff. So I don't, I'm not totally deterministic about one's upbringing or, you know, I don't, there are so obviously some correlations there or something, but I don't think it's purely deterministic. Um, you know, the, like the the protect, you know, Elizabeth Salander in this in this story, you know, she's undergone all kinds of horrors um, in her childhood, and of the of the worst kind, right? You know, and and it continues on, right? She's considered to be, you know, she can't take care of herself. She's under the water of the state, um, undergone, you know, so all kinds of really horrific things, and yet, really, when you think about it, she's pretty okay in spite of all that. And, um, but as far as the question, like, like how, like, where does the, where does he draw his, um, um, the idea about the violent, you know, violence against, well, each part of the book, the, the book itself is divided up into four parts, like I said earlier, right? And each of those parts starts with a statistic that would exist at that time or or before that time around this violence against women. Um, one of the, I think it's the, I think it's part four 
um, the last statistic in the book where uh, I think the statistic is something like um, 92% of violence against women goes unreported. So I'm not sure exactly where that data came from, but, um, you know, I think that's a big part of it, that stuff just gets normalized, I suppose, or ignored in societies. And, um, yeah, I mean, this goes back to not being allowed to point things out in society. Like, that's the, the, you know, the moment we can't point out, put our hands up in class and say, hang on a second, like, you know, once you can't do that, then you know something is deeply wrong in whatever society you live in, right? And, um, you know, I experienced that as a child in school, and that was one of the first things that kind of woke me up to, you know, like trying to figure out my own epistemology, right, personally. It was like, you know, the seeing the, does, does reality comport with my own, you know, logical kind of moment and then you know once you see that it doesn't then you start to kind of try to figure it out and you know now we're in the same same thing where you you know putting your hand up is going to get you you know banished or whatever and that's never a good sign for society you know regardless of what the issue is any issue right whether you like the issue or not not being able to question it is a bad a bad sign I think, and maybe that was part of what motivated this author to try to write a book that raises awareness of this issue by, you know, just writing a story about it. And um, because he felt maybe that he couldn't really put his hand up any other way, you know. Well, I mean, it's true that literature and art in general tends to be more galvanizing than just writing an article about something typically or giving people the facts. Because if you think about it, Uncle Tom's Cabin was written by Harriet Beecher Stowe as a way of trying to get people to see the horrors of slavery. It's totally fictional, but at the same time, it's not. The point is to galvanize the public. And art is supposed to do that. Like it's like it's like really good art is supposed to point out a problem in your society, and that people are, have been ignoring or not have haven't done enough about. So most, I, I mean, like for example, right now I'm in first draft writing about male rape, uh, you know, made to penetrate rape because it's not recognized in the United States as an actual rape, and that bothers me. So like, yeah, you, as a writer, a fiction writer, you tend, or even like as a playwright or a poet, you tend to write about these kinds of things. It doesn't make it, the problem is though, when you're not doing it um, from an authentic standpoint, but you're instead trying to like basically create propaganda and there is a line there and it's kind of hard sometimes to tell. And I think it, it, it's propaganda when everyone is basically going, this proved all the things I already thought about society, you know, like, you know, uh, oh, men are horrible, women are victimized, you know, like if someone was to try to make Amber Heard look like a good person in fiction or something, you know, like really 
trying to push the what is already considered uh, standard ideas, you know, um, things that are pushed by academia and everything. But like, I do believe that Sweden already had a problem, like based on all the research I had looked into, Sweden already had a problem before more recent times, although it did explode, but it already had a problem by comparison to other European nations. So I could totally see him like, because he was a journalist, wasn't he? Steve Larson. And like having, you know, it, like had to like research this kind of stuff, run across it probably in his professional life and go, I can't, I can't leave this alone. Like it's a problem and I want to talk about it. Now on the idea in the book that the, the murderers are like doing this from some sort of um, Christian standpoint, I think part of that is about, um, first of all, the Old Testament, which I have read, is very violent, very dark, very horrible. Um, and like, I swear, I, there were some times that I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I just read that. That was terrible. Why is that in a religious text? And so you'll notice that most of the Christian stuff that is referenced, first of all, is perverted. And then secondly, is um, from the Old Testament, because that's where all the, the stuff most likely to be um, used negatively will probably be found. Um, and honestly, like the whole idea that it was uh, white Christian men, I think it's more important to note that it was wealthy men uh, who had a lot of resources at their disposal uh, and were somewhat of a protected class. Because elitism is more, to me, more of a problem than any other demographic for getting away with crime. Um, I think that's more likely to protect you uh, from being uh, charged with your crimes and caught in the first place. Because people aren't even going to look at you. So look, looking at that stick statistic, you brought up the 92% and somebody in chat was saying like, so that's 92% of unrecorded incidents. So like, I'm curious where that comes from. It's yeah. got to be surveys like polls, I guess, but women's centers reports and stuff. But, yeah. and compare that to what you say you're writing about right now. What's the unreported percentage of male rape, which isn't even illegal. Like that's like the, un, you know, what is the unreported percentage of witch burnings in Salem by the Puritans like it wasn't a crime there so that's prob we probably don't know the extent of that either um, by the way to Ross that's more Christian violence against women um, but anyway that's a side note I, I think the, the unreported I, I'm glad you're going after that that's what I really wanted to say and there was something else I want to say and I forgot so please continue yeah I I, um, I'm just thinking back to um, when I first announced this book on Discord, I think. I just threw it. I don't spend that much time on Discord because I just don't have, have the time, right? But um, uh, when I first posted this suggestion for this book, I do remember a little bit of pushback, a couple of comments perhaps that, oh, this guy's a lefty. You know, this book is all kind of blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, the, like, the, 
that whole viewpoint of like the, this, the left versus the right kind of thing, I think is kind of crazy, you know, like you, you're making the, I think, you know, Carter, you've said before, like, you know, you're stuck in a cage with two gorillas, right? One's wearing red and one's wearing blue shorts. Right. You know what I mean? It's yeah. It's insane. Um, Only the red one should beat me up. (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, so any, any reference to, you know, like these are, you know, like Christian white right wing, so what? Like, like to pretend that um, all these kinds of things only fit one political class or one demographic is, you know, just putting on blinders. I feel, and um, we need to get out of this whole paradigm of left and right and just start thinking about like, you know, top down, top down control versus you know, bottom up. Um, you know, for me, that's that's the way I look at it. You know, I I sit at, I feel like I sit at the bottom looking at for distributed solutions and whether you're left or right, you just meet at the top, which is all top down, heavy authoritarianism at the top. doesn't make any difference at that point with what you call yourself left or right. You're just an authoritarian. Right. And, um, so in his time when he wrote this, um, he was, you know, there was a, you know, I think, you know, Sweden has a strong, um, looking back historically on it, has a has a very strong um, kind of um, probably like a racist under, undercurrent and a very sexist undercurrent too. And it just, you know, the fact that that's mostly white Christian men is more probably you know, happenstance more than anything else, I think. I mean, as far as the religious, you know, when you look at the religious um, aspect of all these, what's happening now and then what's what's happened in the past, it's not like Christendom has any kind of shining, um, you know, um, you know, (laughs) you've only got to listen to Dan Carlin's Pain Fortainment episode to go back in history and just hear about all the horrific things were done in the name of Christianity, like to, to in England, you know, we're not talking about going to foreign countries and torturing other people. We're talking about like heresy was enough to get you burned at the stake. Right. And, um, you know, so just, you know, pick your, pick your, pick your time in history and you can find all kinds of examples of, you know, horrors, you know, that pockmark hour, you know, and there's a few shining kind of lights in history where we've actually made progress. And, you know, we got to stick, kind of still try to nourish that, I think, not, you know, constantly become divided, which is so easy to do, I think, you know, like it's so easy to get divided and lose track, lose sight of what it is we're trying to accomplish. And I, you know, yeah, sorry, Carl. I just wanted to jump in on a couple of things. Uh, one, I mean, I agree. Obviously, I think the authoritarian versus individualism is the kind of the scale that we should be looking at the world in, rather than than you know which flavor of authoritarianism is your is your favorite. Um, right. And uh, I, but one thing, one other thing that kind of 
it bothers me by default. I'm not I'm not accusing this author of doing this intentionally because I think it's just so common. Um and it makes for an interesting book, but um this this idea that uh r- successful people is where you find evil. So first of all, statistically that's not true. Evil is around 85 IQ. Like the 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 criminal criminality is generally about a standard deviation below average IQ. Success generally means higher IQ. It doesn't mean that there are not sometimes Dr. No exists. Like, sure, sometimes there are smart people who are absolute sadists that that success are successful in business or whatever and rise. But if you if you look at most um stories, uh the villains are almost always if you want to have a powerful villain the default is to make the powerful villain the rich guy um because the implication is that he would have only gotten rich through some kind of nefarious means which is which is a throwback to par- par- perhaps like monarchies or aristocracies or when or war warlord kind of times where yeah how you got rich was invading other people and and pillaging but in modern society, you get rich by pleasing customers and trading voluntarily on the free market in general. That said, I also think there's an elitist problem. It's it's more elected officials and bureaucrats and some of the rich who are part, you know, some of the leaders of businesses who are involved in that. I mean, we could name a lot of the top names and I would throw them into that horrible person category with other lizard people that want to rule the world. Um, but there is this kind of automatic assumption like oh i need a really i need a badass villain i guess he has to be he must be a corpo like that <laughs> that's how we do it uh yeah. and at least this book did not paint government in a good light which is i always i always think if you really want powerful villains why not write about bureaucrats um and uh and at least this book did that but um i i just i just wanted to you know i just wanted to point out that they I'm kind of just personally tired of the trope of like, oh, it's a rich, it's a rich businessman who's secretly a serial killer. You know what? That like that just doesn't happen. I'm sorry. Like, yeah, okay, Epstein, like, fine, but he likely got rich through political connections and other stuff. He didn't like build a company. Um, so like it just does it just rarely, rarely, rarely happens. The other thing I want to point about about Stieg's politics is I think and maybe someone, maybe you know, Richard, you were born in in the UK. Maybe someone who's in Europe now can 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 comment on this. But I think, especially World War II and post World War II, there's been a mentality, just like people uh, view the left and the right here, like you're Democrat or Republican, and there's that's the that's the entirety of the political landscape. There is a Nazi or commie, basically. I mean, there's basically like you're either socialist or a fascist and those are the only two options so anyone who looked at germany and said well i don't want to be a nazi that's clearly evil threw their hat in the what was called an anti-fascist ring like oh well we have to side with the other guys and because stalin's crimes were uh hidden they don't realize that they're just switching from one evil hat to another evil hat and the whole thing is a sham and they should be opting out of both of those ideologies. And I think 
that's kind of when 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 I look at someone like Larson, even someone was saying earlier he was a Marxist or he believed this or that. I, it, he was probably a default socialist, like most people in Europe would be, because they look at Nazism and they're like, "Well, that's evil, so I'll do the thing that everyone else thinks is evil." But it's not. It's not necessarily. You can get radicalized that way, but it's not necessarily coming from a place of I've thought this through and this is what I believe. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I trying. Just, to... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Alex. I was just going to say, like, I, I, I know that social democrats were like a big like party that formed in a lot of European countries. So, it, it, like, socialism was, but they, I, I also know that in the 20th century, they weren't that successful. Like if you look at their uh, their numbers, they were they were getting high in the teens of the 20th century, and then as time went on, they they had to kind of like even after World War II, they didn't their their political power never really like took off that much, um, and a lot of them, even leaders of the Social Democrats parties, had to basically say that they had to work within the system. They were never going to get a, a a revolution like they did in Russia like they they saw that that wasn't going to happen so they just decided that they were going to have to work within the system and they also reached out to more uh to to less likely non-proletariat groups to try to expand um which meant they had to expand their stances though uh and so the thing is though is that like being a social democrat is not necessarily like a huge um, like it's not like hardcore socialism like we think of it like often um, because it got watered down throughout the 20th century now is that true in 2022 that's debatable um, I, I've I've noticed an upsurge in socialism and even the calls to tear down the current systems and uh, lots of anti-capitalist kind of sentiments going around <laughs> so <laughs> i'm not so but at the time of this book i don't think that they were they were as strong as they are today <laughs> yeah i agree with that yeah i mean i think like just to like we use this head card to be fair to the book i think that um he does make a case in the book i think a fairly fair case in the book that he's not he doesn't come across this way, at least, even if this is what he actually is. He doesn't come across as being really anti-capitalist. I don't think so, anyway, because he sort of defends the um, the Vanguard Company and that, the model that that was built upon, which was like a you know the kind of um, one of the big kind of industrialists of the time. Um, so. I know what you're saying about the dig against, there is this sort of undercurrent dig against sort of people with money. And I, I, I was aware of that too. And I, that's, we're seeing it now too, right? It's not like that's gone away. Like, you know, unless it's a big, some huge corporations that seem to get all the defending. And um, so it's a, it's, it's a weird, you know, um, dividing. Well, yeah, go I ahead. I want to say though that the book, I think the book actually takes kind of a more of a moderate stance on rich people, because if you think about it, Mikhail's um, benefactor 
is, uh, you know, extremely rich and he's paying him for a year and doing him a favor. Like, and then also at the same time, the main character owns a company. So, and there's nothing in that that says that this, you know, the Vanderbilts or Millennium is evil. There's nothing of that in there, even though they are both capitalist structures. Whereas, you know, the, the real problem with, uh, why Mikhail ended up going to jail for several months is an, a rival company to his benefactor um, who is doing illegal things. He's not even doing normal capitalist things. He's just breaking the law all over the place. And that's not, that's not an anti-capitalist stance. That's a, this guy is corrupt at this one guy. And, and Martin is, fucked in the head he's not it but it has nothing to do with his business right. uh that that he's bad guy like as i said i i do well i do think uh money can help protect criminality i would never say that it creates criminality yeah. um so that i don't i i don't make that correlation in the slightest and i don't think the book really did like either uh, yeah. because of the the rich people or the people who own companies who are not evil yeah yeah i think if you know, like reading the epilogue, um, once once all this has sort of become, you know, once the whole story is sort of wrapped up, really, essentially, right? And he he gets his kind of he gets the Wennerstrom group on a platter, kind of, you know, he gets all that. Um, one interesting thing was this criticism in the book, uh, you know, the and you know, with the through the character of the journalist Blomkist. Um, his criticism of media and how kind of easily bought they were and how I, I thought that was pretty good um, because that's kind of where we're at as well right now and f aiming fair criticism or what the role of journalists is supposed to be and instead how they really protect these, um, you know, um, not necessarily just, just criminal but just inept and corrupt institutions when they go off the rails. I thought that was pretty well put out there as well, given the time and given his own politics. That was kind of, you know, if this was coming from a much more kind of self-proclaimed libertarian uh, author, then you might expect more of that. But <clears throat> coming from a an author who was, you know, joined a socialist party and everything else, then it's more surprising to come out with this book, I think, than the other way around, you know? So in that sense, I feel like this should be credit where credit's due, um, you know? And, you know, just like the criticism of the media not being journalistic, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's a thread that runs through the whole book. And I feel like that's something we badly need now, really, you know? Um, some real journalists, which sort of, you know, hard to find, eh? Like, um, <laughs> You know, especially I'm not talking about alternative media. I'm just talking about like, you know, the so-called, you know, so-called journalistic institutions that simply can't seem to produce a journalist any longer, you know. Can, does one of you want to talk about, uh, just from a literary perspective, are there uh, moments in the book that you appreciate more than others that you think were well done? 
I will say that for dealing with violence of um, such an extreme nature, Steve Larson's style is actually helpful because I feel like it has more impact, especially when, um, when Lisbeth is essentially raped, that um, he's not, his prose is not purple in the slightest. And like I brought up Uncle Tom's Cabin before and that deals a lot with extreme violence, but the prose is sensationalist, which makes it really hard to like not roll your eyes at it. Um, but this, in this regard, Steve Larson like plays it pretty straight uh, in his style, which I think is actually helpful for handling those situations and for feeling the impact of them. Um, he just states facts. He's not trying to sway you one way or the other about the events. So, you know, the fact that uh, Elizabeth is being raped hits harder um, because it's not, it's not played on your emotion. It's just like, this is so horrible. Like you feel how horrible it is just by the bare facts of it, which I, I appreciated because I know that a lot of writers will get very purple when they deal with violence. Um, it's, it's very easy to do so. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I feel the same way. Like instead of overstating something, you know, just sort of stating it is, has more impact, you know? Um, yeah. And I feel like, you know, yeah, that, that, that one scene in particular was, you know, well written, I think. And his whole, you know, the whole character of um, Salander uh, was well done, I thought, you know, like um, very convincing from a character point of view. Um, and and one that you could um, kind of empathize with, but not in a, not in a sort of soppy way, you know what I mean? Like, um, you know, she was both, you know, she was both a victim and a hero kind of at the same time. She, she didn't, she didn't wallow in her victimhood, you know, she did everything she could to rise above it. And that alone was worth, for me, was, uh, you know, a lesson that's worth learning. I think, you know, not to wallow in one's, you know, misfortune or victimhood or whatever else, you know, it's to find ways through it and out of it. And this, that's something that the character in the book did really well. I think. She did a great job in the, in the yeah. end. Right. And somebody earlier, Oh, go ahead. He just left. Um, I thought I was it was because I may have a little background noise, which I just figured out what it is. But anyway, a quick point. Um, the, uh, Someone asked earlier, I think it might have been Richard, about um, the the people in the book and their approach and if Larson agreed with it. And I'll just note that in the end, right at the end, uh, the, the journalist, he finds out, he's pretty sure who did <laughs> by, by pictures of her back and everything. Yeah. He, he figures out who did the thing that's being widely reported and he just laughs. Like So that's Larson's view. Yeah, um, yeah which is pretty awesome, right? <laughs> Well, and I, um, I, the thing is about what Lisbeth's situation and why the rape even occurs is that she, like, 
we the the layout that they give you of her character is that she is very different um always has been and society has failed to recognize her difference not as an antisocial personality disorder which she does not have but as something as simple as autism um and a high iq and they they act and they they put her in this incredibly vulnerable situation and yep. it's so awful because yep. she she literally cannot go to the police she yep. she has unless she had evidence but even then like yep. you know you don't know like and so the problem here it's not until recently that Sweden like really changed their rape consent laws um, there's like 2018, I think they, they restructured some of them, but so like, she, it wasn't really, she didn't have a lot of like options from society. Society put her in this position in the first place by basically saying she was insane and she could not take care of herself, which is not true. Yeah. It's just that she doesn't like to talk to people <laughs> and doesn't like to touch them. And that's a completely reasonable <laughs> personality but there's nothing that's not insane <laughs> so it, to me that 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 shows like a serious problem that your reaction like to uh someone being different is to declare them insane and it's like it, are they different enough that you know they're not recognizing reality no they just don't want to talk to you that's your that's your line for what is insane they don't want to talk to you that's a pretty low fucking bar to declare someone, uh, you know, un- incapable of taking care of themselves is that they don't, they're not talkative enough for you. Like that's, that's a really shitty line to, to draw on. So like for me, I, I like, I feel really bad for Elizabeth before the rape even happens because I really, she's been given, she's been dealt a really shitty hand by the system and the thing is, though, is that that is, that is not a new idea that, that people go, someone's slightly different, just slightly different. They're not, they're not friendly enough, so we're going to declare them insane. Or, you know, like, they want a little bit more control over their lives, so we're going to declare them insane. I mean, like, even, like, Soviet Russia, de- like, basically declared a, a bunch of people insane for not agreeing to society's norms. And it's like, that's not... That's not enough. That's not enough to declare someone insane. But uh, so this kind of thing is, and honestly, we're still in a problem where uh, a lot of structures will still do that, declare someone insane for disagreeing with some basic premises about society. And that's not appropriate. And so I really appreciated that section of the book. I, um, I feel like the book had some really weird things about men and women going on that I didn't 100% line up with. Like the fact that Elizabeth falls in love with Mikhail felt very forced and weird to me. I was like, that came out of fucking nowhere. I don't know. Like that. I did not see him do the work for that one, but I've often noticed that with uh, writers who are not novelists and, and, and a lot of writers who are, literary is that when it comes to how men and women fall in love they have this weird disconnect and and how to write it and they just end up basically doing it happened and i'm like that's not good enough that's not how that happens and but they they get lazy with it partially because i think they don't want to write a romance novel 
and showing how people fall in love can sometimes make people go, oh, it's just a romance novel. And it's like, well, the problem is, is that if you are writing about reality and you want one character to fall in love with another character, you do have to do the work and actually show it, despite what critics might say about the genre at that point. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> just getting back to your um, point about um, how society kind of um, put her in a box, right? Um, it's actually worse than, I think this comes out in book two, you know, it kind of goes deeper into her backstory um, and the role that the state played in, like, keeping her in a box, you know, like... So it's even worse than just like um, just a societal acceptance. It's you know you know the the pain only increases right. It gets turned up to eleven in that book. I think one of my favorite, just to kind of give it a little bit of levity, <laughs> perhaps um, one of my favorite scenes in the book, which is pretty early on, when she's working for this security pretty, you know, pretty straight up security company. And she gets um, a chance there because of her current ward, who she likes and, and seems to care for her, right? He tries to get her a job at this place. And so she gets hired on. And, um, and then a little bit further on, um, this lawyer, Frode, who's hired by the Vanguard guy to try to um, do a little research on Blomfkis because he wants to do a little research in the background of him. When she shows up for that meeting, which her boss has tried to avoid having her present at all, because, you know, this is a pretty straight up kind of lawyer guy and he knows what she's like. And his, so the, you know, the, the author's description of how she shows up in this outfit, which was awesome. And he used, and then he, he just sort of like, I think the last sentence in that, or the last few words in that sentence, uh, yeah, she was fully decked out. <laughs> it really made me laugh because I could just picture it in my mind that you have this, you know, these two kind of pretty straight up guys in their suits and stuff. And here walks in this, you know, like punk rocker kind of girl. girl. And, you know, it, it's a juxtaposition that, I don't know, tickled my funny bone, I guess, right? And, <laughs> made me laugh because you know it's too easy to it's all too easy to get captured by one's own biases and that clouds one's own judgment or, or at least can cloud your judgment right so this was just a kind of a for myself for my for myself at least a way of uh giving me a reality check around that kind of thing right that you know appearances aren't always what they look like it's an interesting theory and i see people are talking about it in chat marcy dog brought up that he's in, larson's inserting himself in that <laughs> character which is we've been chatting about that like yeah and this was before the um the uh 90s uh alternative rock song that that has the chorus i searched the world over for my angel in black um but yeah that's what that song's about uh that's interesting I think Alex kind of agreed with that. Yeah, yeah I think I that would be too. Yeah. 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 
Another topic, this is sort of in, you know, since you're getting into the, the different literary interpretations and where he was at. Um, another one I wanted to bring up is the movie versus the book. Um, mm. And I've watched the movie first. I didn't know it was a book. Um, and it was because my girlfriend had seen it four times, including right when it came out. But the Swedish version, I just found out a few days ago there's an English version. And somebody in, con in chat said that um, it's a remake. So, like, I want to watch it and look at the differences. And one of the – there's a couple striking differences that I just – I'm going to pick out two to talk about. Um, first off, one is the standard book thing. The book is 16 hours on Audible, and the movie's like, a little over two. So that gives you a different view. Um, I, I think – I wish I had read the book first because I'd probably understand the movie better. Um, one of the big differences between the two – and I'm talking about the Swedish version. Um, okay. Uh, the um, – the rape scene in the movie is like you barely want to watch it. It's super graphic and violent. It goes on and on and on and on. That scene in the book is is almost is so mild. It just kind of talks about a recovery for the most part. You know, just a short passage about what's going on. It's a big scene in the Swedish version of the movie. Like, and I, I watched that and like, well, this is just Hollywood. I wondered, you know, who came up with that. Um, now I know it's not Larson. That's that's interesting. I wonder what the English version is. If it's a Hollywood produced English version, that's probably half the movie. That's what I'm wondering. I'm trying to remember. I think the, I think the English version has the Bond actor, doesn't it? Um, what's his name? Um, Daniel Craig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has him in it, right? And um, I think I've seen that one. I'm not. I can't remember to be honest with you. Like um, maybe I'm superimposing the first one onto the second one or something. Um, we'll I, I want to watch the, the English version now and one of the reasons is what Alex just brought up is the, is the literary you know like where does this come from what was Larson's perspective and the Swedish version I now know is a quite different perspective um, and I suspect the English one is some other different perspective so it's kind of interesting as a study of who brought it out like what they focus on and they have to in a two and a half hour movie you have to pick out what to focus on and what to skip so having read the book it's really interesting to watch the movie and look at what they highlighted and what they skipped and yeah. it's not what i would guess it's yeah. far from what i would have guessed yeah it's quite different isn't it yeah yeah i mean that's uh yes generally the case isn't it with books versus movies anyway right mm -hmm. you know um I just wanted to – there's a comment in chat from GCASMR, uh, which I guess I should say from GCASMR, uh, <laughs> who, who says, uh, do you think seeing the, the – she's uh, she or he is talking about uh, the relationship between the two of them that we thought was kind of ham-fisted and forced. She, she says, do you think seeing the murders connected them and her with her trauma history, I was thinking she confused that connection for love. Hmm. My problem was partially when she first meets him, um, you know, when he shows up at her apartment, she's already like way more comfortable with him than she is with anyone else. And while I believe that does happen for some people like her, I it just, because it is kind of an author insert character, Mikhail is, that it felt a bit like a fantasy. Um, and from that perspective, 
So to me, and I've seen a lot of writers do this too, that where they, they, they do have an author insert character and the author insert character gets a, you know, a love interest that is absolutely fucking amazing and perfect and everything. And, but they don't, they don't do anything to deserve them. Like, you know, there's nothing, there's no work done to make them like, to make the crazy, amazing person fall in love with them. And I feel like there is is something that happens though, Alex, which is, which is every, well, not every, but many authors like fantasy, which is she does research on him. She falls in love with him. Well, I won't say falls in love. She becomes interested in him because of his writing, because of his, authorship which is like what authors want like oh she loves me because i'm such a great journalist like that's what (laughs) that's the fantasy yeah i which is a fantasy i'm sorry that's not reality like if okay if you're a writer and i and 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 this happens to to men male writers more than it happens to female writers and a and a woman reads your writing and like falls in love with you from afar She's probably not a normal human being, maybe a little dangerous, probably a stalker. <laughs> so you don't want that. Like, and, and this this happens to famous men all the time. Women fall in love with them from afar, but they're not really in love. They're obsessed. And it's and it's a stalker yeah. issue. <laughs> it's the if you ever saw the show Californication, it's how it opens. Like the very first episode is basically a stalker who ruins this guy's, I mean, he does a good job of ruining his own life, but ruins this guy's life because she becomes infatuated with him after reading him. Uh, I think it's exactly, I think that's much more likely scenario than an actual healthy love develops. I can see that perspective. I can see that perspective, but that never occurred to me because I recognized a different angle on that watching the movie, like immediately because uh, you know, Stockholm Syndrome is named after the capital of Sweden. So, yeah, it's a thing there. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Keith. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's. I thought that immediately, like, oh, this yeah. is just Stockholm Syndrome. And then they get to the end where the, the uh, you know, the, the murder chamber in the basement um he reports the girls fall in love with them or they you know they're trying to you know yeah. satisfy him because they think they'll live in the end like no that doesn't work with stockholm syndrome there's a lot of uh citizens of every nation in the world that have that right now and yeah. that comes well, from sweden i guess i don't know why'd they name it that <laughs> i guess if you ask you know an interesting question would be to ask yourself like if sweden was a member of one's family. Like you say, you had a big family and Sweden happened to be one of your, you know, relatives. Wonder, how would you think of that? How would you describe that relative? You know? As Maybe a- Swedish? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't like the group think, but I am curious why I was named that. Another point I was going to make um, was in response to Alex, and it's related to this. As far as Sweden itself as a society and the government and and how they handled this influx or this, you know, vast increase in in violence against women, Sweden is one of the few countries in Europe that remained neutral throughout World War II. Like Sweden was never occupied by the Germans. 
Like their history, I don't know how far back their history goes, but Sweden has been a pretty peaceful country way, way back. I don't know when the last time they were occupied. Yeah, I I just looked it up too that it was from a bank robbery in state Stockholm, in uh, Stockholm, Sweden, in, in the seventies. So like, yeah, I like literally was like, all oh, right, where where does it come from? <laughs> that's why, apparently. <laughs> well, that's easier to explain, I guess. Then, right? You know, I mean, <laughs> in some sense, if someone's robbing a bank, I could see maybe you know sympathizing with the uh, yeah. If I wasn't carrying, I might fall in love too. I don't know. <laughs> if it's a Federal Reserve Bank, I'm head over heels. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh man, we are we are getting a little yeah late, I, and we need to end with like I don't know if suggesting we end yet. It's only one thirty nine, but uh, there was another thing I wanted to point out. Um, one of my favorite books when I was a young kid was Pippi Longstocking. Oh. Does anybody know Pippi Longstocking was brought up? It's a yeah. book written. Do you know that one, Alex? It's a it's a children's book written in Swedish about a, a young girl who lives in this house. She's thirteen or something, and she has two neighbors next door, Swedish kids. She lives in this huge house, and her father is a, a pirate captain. <laughs> And it's, yeah, Pippi. And for some reason, you know how the memory, I'm just going to, because I want to, the first part of the conversation was tiring to me. But um, you know how some things stick in your head because you've read the book so many times? I have no idea when the last time I read this. I was probably 12. But Pippi Longstocking, the Swedish book, her name is Pippolata Delicatessa, e Window Shady, Ephraimsville, Maxwell, f daughter of... Captain Ephraim Maxwell, formerly the terror of the seas, now a pirate captain on some island. Like, I don't know why that's still in my brain. That tells you how many times I read that book when I was like nine. <laughs> it's a funny book. Alex, if you've never read that, I think you should read it. And they bring it up in the movie and talk about it. They talk about Pippi. <laughs> I haven't heard Pippi referenced for two decades, at least. I think that was an influence for Larson as well, writing the book. For the character, um, mm -hmm. Salander character, yeah. Yeah, Sal Salander is actually Pippi. She's a, she's like a high-tech hacker version of Pippi, which I think that book was written in the 50s, maybe? Yeah. Six, early 60s. Anyway, that I picked up on that. I don't know how many people picked up on that one. I went back and read the section like, oh, I haven't heard that name in a long time. Yeah. Any final thoughts before we kind of wrap up? I think we're probably approaching time. Uh, any other any other thoughts anyone wants to throw out about the book? I thought it was a good mystery. We haven't even touched on that, but I thought it was well mm -hmm. constructed. Uh, I didn't think they bury he buried things so that like because that's a lot of mystery writers did that thing. Uh, Agatha Christie and Sherlock and you know um, Arthur Conan Doyle both did this, where like they would have the main character realize something, but not tell the audience, not tell the reader. And like, we didn't see that here. I, I find that a, that's a failure in mystery. So I was quite pleased that he never really pulled that trick on us. <laughs> yeah. Are you guys going to read the next two? Well, I've already read the all three a couple of times. So um, no, I would recommend them for sure. You know, they're interesting. They're good. Um, you know, um, 
I would recommend everybody, this will tickle you, Carter, I would recommend everybody, if you have the fortitude, read Human Action. Um, <laughs> hello, hello, hello. I, that's one of those ones I want to be a book club book, but no one will show up and and I will need to give them, you know, two or three months to read it. So, uh, yeah, but yeah, that's a guess a good one. Oh, you're... I don't know what to tell you. Right? I, that's, you know. <laughs> All right. Uh, Keith, if you don't have any more comments and Richard, you don't have any more comments and Alex, I think you made your. Yeah, Renata, Richard, you opened with this is another ending thing. You you opened with a discussion of your accent. Um, so R Renata wanted to say something about it. I first want to hear the accent. Oh, okay. Um, if I if there's a, if there's a brand of tea I would recommend, this is really speaking to Carter. It would be Yorkshire Gold. You're a tea lover, I think, Carter, or so. I am Yorkshire Gold. All right. Get yourself some Yorkshire Gold. gold. Are you, are, like, just like Spiffing Brit and Patrick Stewart, you recommend Yorkshire Gold. Okay. Yorkshire Gold. I have some downstairs, actually. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I, do, I, do, I do notice a slight little accent there on Richard. <laughs> well, I, I, I spent the first 23 years of my life in England always wanting to become an American and then settled for 10th place becoming a Canadian. So, <laughs> you know, it's not you. the same thing, Richard. <laughs> it's definitely not the same. Especially <laughs> not now. <laughs> uh -uh. Oh, my goodness me. I, I, I've got lots to say about it. I, I won't do it right now. Well, I'm, gl I'm glad you hosted. That was interesting. It's great oh. when people in the unsafe space community are willing to be an advocate for the book, which, which is... A, it's a time-consuming thing to under read it and understand it and give a summary, and so that's great. Well, thanks, thanks. so much, Keith. I'm a big fan of the show, and all you guys are just awesome. And um, you know, it's nice to be on the show. It was ultimate, right? I was very, very excited about today, so has not been a disappointment. So thank you very, very much, and for everybody in chat who you know contributed to it. Thank you so much, too. And, um, yeah, I'll see you guys uh, in chat at some point on one of the shows, or maybe you'll read one of my poems. Who knows? So there you go. A plug for myself. <laughs> oh, I, you know what? I should, have, I should have plugged that earlier. Richard does have one pub uh, published, uh, poem published on unsafeface.com, which was in the abstract, I think, last week. Uh, and more are probably coming. So uh, if you want to read some Richard Pett's poetry, there's your chance. Uh, and and I, I also just really want to thank you, Richard, for uh, deciding to be the advocate for this book and doing the work to do that. And and if anyone else wants, if there's books that you want, if anyone else wants to be an advocate for a book or run a book club, uh, just let us know in Discord or send us an email at speak at unsafespace.com. And we will, uh, depending on the book, <laughs> we'll say yes or no. Uh, depending on the book, we'll, we'll get back to you. Um, the next book club is January 8th. Keith is going to be the advocate for it. It is National Divorce by Tom Woods. It's called The Peaceful Solution to Irreconcilable Differences. And the one after that is Light by M. John Harrison. And that one is on February 5th. So you can get a head start on both of those if you want over the holidays. And uh, I guess that's it. Thanks again, everyone.
Thank Richard, thank you again so much. Carter, how do you spell that? Is it L-I-T-E or L-I-G-H-T? L-I-G-H-T. Okay. By M. John Harrison. You can go to uh, the book club page on unsafespace.com. There's links to the okay. book, so you it's easy to find. Um, but yeah, all the information is there. And uh, thanks again for everyone joining. And, thank and, you so uh, much. and for you, Richard. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. It would be better for your health if you forgot what you just heard. That should be easy for someone of your intelligence. The following co-conspirators are hereby ordered to watch CNN. Experts agree that 87,000 new tax collectors will make inflation feel like less of a problem. I think we can agree that the FBI's track record speaks for itself. If you think about it, only government-sanctioned experts should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.